Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Roberta Manel Montero. It's uh, May 10th, 2023. We're at Seven Springs Vineyard in Salem. And thank you so much, Damien and the team here, for letting us use their space today. Roberta, thank you for being with us. And the first Delighted question... Delighted to be here and on such a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day in the valley. <laughs> first question for you is why wine? Um, because I think uh, wine is an expression of community and culture. And it's why I wanted to be part of um, not just the wine scene in general, but more importantly here in Oregon. My background is not one that has involved wine. Um, It's interesting, when I started uh, exploring the thought of why why wine, mm-hmm. uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to the time just after university when I was traveling around Europe um, and the sense and the presence of wine as a normal everyday part of their lives. And interestingly, I got to spend um, a good portion of a year living with a family uh, that had, um, they made their own wine, they grew grapes and they made it in a co-op, but I got to get a feel for how, uh, living in a village with where everybody had that in common, that level of community and that level of, um, of, uh, attention and care mm-hmm. and the way it flowed through their entire lives. It's not a nine to five job, obviously. Um, and just um, the people that, that were part of um, their community and more widely mm-hmm. uh, were, were who I wanted to be involved with. And so even though my background uh, didn't involve wine at all, I started looking in that direction when I returned from Europe and came straight to California at the time. Um, I should digress and say that uh, my studies didn't involve wine at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have a degree in foreign service. My parents were diplomats, and um, I wanted to follow that track that had given me a lot of, um, actually a great life and adventures uh, as a result of that travel. But I started thinking, um, a little bit differently. My life kind of made a little bit of a left turn when I uh, came back uh, to California and I started looking at how I could, what angle I could use to become part of this uh, industry given that I didn't have the production background that I thought you needed mm-hmm. to do so. And so this was back in the early mid-80s when uh, Times were tough. Uh, You were not able to get a job almost anywhere. And I was fortunate in that I did find uh, a job uh, at Calera, actually, with um, uh, Steve Dorner and his team. But my job was labeling bottles with the other Mexican ladies in the team. 
And it was great because I spoke Spanish fluently. We got on. And then during lunch breaks, you know, I'd take you know, time off and I'd be sitting. I can vividly remember sitting right on top of one of the tanks outside. Um, in fact, with uh, it wasn't just with Steve and, and Richard. It was also with um, Randall Graham. Bonnie Dune, who was making wine there, and uh, it was really a very important experience. Uh, and then from there, I ended up getting a full-time job at Navarro Vineyards in the Anderson Valley, uh, which, again, is not really at that at the time. It was really kind of the backwaters, um, and just starting to get to know it itself uh, beyond orchards. And I was fortunate. Um, to meet um, my former husband John uh, there and he brought me into the wine community in the sense of tastings and in the sense of being invited to participate in Steamboat and the Steamboat conference for me was um, life-changing in a sense it completely reaffirmed the whole reason why I pursued this this different path and allowed me to um, get that much more deeply connected with people, particularly people from Oregon, but from further afield as well. So winemakers from California, as well as winemakers from uh, other countries, um, including New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that eventually led, led uh, me and John to um, take on a new adventure and establish a vineyard in uh, Central Otago. And um, uh, at the same time, keeping my, my, my presence here in Oregon as people would wait until I'd finished vintage and then I'd come back and um, uh, interact with them in the capacity of my selling wine barrels. So. I guess I um, need to back up and thank Vincent for taking me on, Vincent Bouchard, um, at a time in my life when I wasn't quite sure what aspect, what, what facet within the wine business I, I'd be happiest with. I knew I wanted to be able to travel. I love the number of people that I met through Steamboat and through other uh, avenues. Um, John and I would, were also invited to go overseas and visit wineries in Burgundy, in Alsace, in Champagne, and um, a lot of friendships. From that aspect, I speak French, so that um, made it a bit easier as well. But I um, am delighted that I am um, able to have uh, a uh, career whereby I get to learn something new every day, get to learn to meet new people or people that I um, have come to to treasure really over, over the years. I get an excuse to visit them at least once uh, a year. And um, so I'm, I'm uh, delighted to be continuing that. Uh, this is my now, my 30th year working with Oregon winemakers. And um, I, just look forward to every morning. <laughs> so I want to back up 
because you mentioned sort of life before wine being kind of interesting for you. So tell me about growing up, uh, parents as diplomats. Uh, what, what was that like? Where were you? And what were some sort of some of the memories and adventures you had? I was born in Mexico, um, in Mexico City, and um, growing up we had nannies, as one, one does uh, when you're overseas, and my parents interacted um, quite a bit with, um, I guess, local, on the ambassador level, as well as uh, uh, with uh, people more locally, and I um, thought I had a, an absolutely wonderful childhood. I remember, you know, riding on, going to the zoo and riding on ponies and just things that uh, didn't involve perhaps a more typical upbringing here in, um, in the States. I never got to wear blue jeans. I remember my <laughs> first pair of blue jeans when I was a teenager, finally. <laughs> But uh, we went from there, um, always back to Washington, D.C. And, and then I spent time living in Chile, uh, primarily in um, Santiago, but we would go to the coast as well, to Valparaíso, um, and the area around Casablanca. Uh, a little bit further to the north has become now quite well known for the wines. and. Um, we then went back to D.C. and then back again to back out uh, to Venezuela, and uh, I remember always being in schools that were both bilingual and run by, um, in some instances, the oil companies. So it was unusual upbringing. I didn't really get the the opportunity to have um, long-range friendships, which is why having this sense of community for me here within the wine business has become um, such a driving force and such an important part of uh, my history here with Oregon winemakers. I love it. So with that kind of background and with the thought in your head that you were going to kind of do something similar with your studies in your, in your life, how did wine become part of, how did you become aware of it? How did you become interested in it in the first place? I think that didn't really happen on, um, on an in-depth basis until after I had graduated from university. Uh, I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service and then traveled around as, as most people do just after university and just try to get a sense of really to what degree I wanted to take this. I wanted not to jump into anything right away and um, I ended up wanting to learn German because I'd met so many people uh, when I was in Germany that were so helpful and it wasn't even on my radar to learn German. I thought Spanish, French, good enough. Uh, I'd actually learned a little bit of Russian as well, um, thinking that would be useful for me. Um, but I fell in love with the people that I was getting to know in Germany and stayed there to learn. And then uh, was actually even working in Germany. And then, in fact, in the, the uh, in a little town called Kloster Reichenbach in the depths of the Black Forest. 
And uh, it was there that I, that I met a family, um, actually in Baden-Baden, um, that I became very close with. And they, uh, um, staying with them and getting to know how their life was so immersed with the vines that they were tending and the wine they were making and how integral that was, uh, integrated in such a way that um, it gave them great pleasure to wake up very early in the morning um, and uh, have a life that was seamless. It wasn't a nine to five job. It wasn't a job where politics entered into all uh, aspects of consideration. and. I decided that's more what I was interested in doing. So you mentioned from there kind of taking the leap to California. So of, of all the places you had seen, all the places you could have gone, why did you choose to go to California? Well, there was a very um, personal and important reason. My mom was in California, in Monterey, um, and I wanted the chance to spend time with her. Um, and this was also getting away from from uh, DC, um, which is where I spent a good portion of my time growing up and certainly my, my uh, university days. Um, I didn't like the humidity either on the East Coast. <laughs> that was a factor moving out here. And um, I just, I loved it out here. And so I wanted some way to continue to facilitate that um, at the time um, I, when I got the job at Navarro Vineyards, um, I had a bicycle. That's how I got back and forth to work. I would, um, the loggers got to know me on the road. They gave me a plenty of, uh, wide berth. Uh, uh, eventually I did get a car and that was primarily so I could go back to see my mom down in, um, in, in Pacific Grove. And, um, again, because of John's connections with others in the wine industry, I started to gravitate towards Oregon and certainly Steamboat played, the Steamboat Conference played a huge part in my desire to spend more time up here and get to know people um, that were also forging their own uh, adventures and destinies within uh, um, a rapidly growing and super interesting place to grow grapes. So before we get to Oregon, before we get to Steamboat, I, I'm curious about as you as you entered into the industry and you were working on the kind of the sales and, and marketing side, what did you discover about that part of the industry? What what was exciting about wine at that time, and what what sold wine? What did people what were people looking for? Well, part of what I did was I worked selling wine in California. I worked at the Oakville Grocery, which is in the heart, the epicenter of uh, the the Napa Valley. And at the time that I worked there, it was also trying, really still finding its identity. Um, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, it was always the winemakers that could allow vineyard character to come through, uh, always, those wines really entranced me. And, um, I think that's been the case all throughout the various paths that I've chosen. Um, those are the people that I enjoy talking with. So 
Steamboat, obviously a pretty seminal moment, seminal kind of co conference for Oregon wine, especially. Uh, you mentioned that it wasn't just for Oregon. So tell me about how you got introduced to it and sort of your initial memories of Steamboat. This was uh, probably as of the mid 80s. And so Steve and Carrie and, and, and Don were, were there at, at the time uh, organizing it. And, uh, you know, fly fishing was definitely an important part of it, but because I didn't have that as, as uh, uh, my, my, my focus, um, I tended to gravitate to going up, a little bit further up um, the, the Umqua River to an area that had this in incredible waterfall and swim hole, and that's where a lot of us would gather in the afternoons when it was a beautiful sunny day, and we would talk, and we would talk about things beyond wine. Mm -hmm. But um, the friendships that you that you know I made there um, have stayed with me through to this day. Um, the fact that this was a place that's pretty remote, uh, or relatively remote at the time. People couldn't go back home. They were there, they needed to, um, there was no phone, there was a phone booth. <laughs> there, was, there weren't cell phones then, or, and there, was, there wouldn't have been signal anyway. Um, it just meant you had to leave everything behind. Um, I was able to participate in, in uh, the tasting of experimental wines, and just the improvement, as Stephen puts it, of the breed. Um, and it's amazing how fast that happened because of the sharing of information. That sharing is part of that sense of community that I talk about that I have uh, loved so much. And a lot of it is, revolves around Pinot because it was always a very difficult variety to get right, both in terms of growing as well as in making it. And fortunately, there are very generous winemakers from other corners that came you know, beyond California uh, from Europe, certainly. Um, there are guest winemakers that came from Germany, Switzerland, as well as France, and then, of course, New Zealand uh, and Australia. And these people, I also got to be um, friends with in ways that um, later defined this uh, desire to have an adventure in New Zealand be part of a, the new, um, I guess, the, the discovery of a region or the sell, discovery of a region that it, at the time um, just had a bare hint of potential and that's Santo Otago, uh, which is at the 45th parallel and you know, the further south of any wine region, and the friendships with, um, with Clive Patton and uh, uh, with uh, Larry McKenna and with uh, just a number of winemakers that came that uh, really excited us to go even further afield than Oregon and perhaps try <laughs> uh, be part of this new generation or at least a generation that was discovering.
-hmm. rather Oregon at, at the time was actually finding it, it had already found its foot, just starting to explore different areas. But we wanted to be part of the earlier generation of, of uh, discovery. And um, so that took us on a journey that lasted well over 15 years. So we did that in the early 2000s. And we um, um, had, you know, a, a, a fantastic um, adventure as I had hoped. It wasn't easy as it wasn't easy here uh, because there wasn't um, any kind of, uh, I guess, uh, trained labor staff. Um, we were doing a lot of the work ourselves and with a lot of people from the community and John actually was a real leader in that regard. He understood what it took to uh, not only grow grapes but grow them for winemaking. We were one of the very few grape growers that weren't doing it just for ourselves for making wine. We sold the majority of our fruit. I would say 90% of our fruit we sold. and and John and our vineyard Pisa Terrace came to be known for the quality of the fruit. He was the first person to bring a pressure bomb to New Zealand so that we could actually measure the uptake of water. Um, the area, I should digress, the area where we uh, decided to plant a vineyard um, in Central Otago has very bony soil. It's just, you need, you need to irrigate, uh, especially when you're establishing uh, a vineyard. Um, we took what was a bare paddock, uh, as they say, uh, filled with lucerne, otherwise known as alfalfa. <laughs> and this site that was so, almost like a little island uh, falls off on all, all sides except for one, uh, was a very special, um, beautiful site, similar to where we are now and that it had beautiful aspect. And it was a real joy um, to work there and, and uh, a struggle to get the first vines to really get going. Um, but over the years, we got to know the site well. Um, we planted it to um, clonal selections that are both Dijon clones as well as one that's a suitcase clone from a DRC um, that uh, was then known as the Able clone. And we got all this information by uh, again, the the wonderful sharing of information that all the winemakers that I visited while I was selling barrels there would offer to, to you know to, to give us, and certainly I would be tasting I'd be tasting and paying attention to clonal selections as much as I was um, to how the barrel was fitting with their wines. Um, but um, that was also a terrific community to be part of. But coming to Oregon and every year, um, coming back in, in April and then having that be my focus has always been the constant that I've just um, loved and appreciated. I think there's a crossover between Central Otago in particular, other regions as well, certainly Nelson uh, and Canterbury uh, and Marlboro. Um, with, uh, with Oregon, and there's always been a kind of a cross-pollination of ideas and people. And so I love the fact that I was bridging both, and, uh, you know, I help people get jobs in both areas as a result, and I love that I could be that kind of 
almost a courier of, of info back and forth. I've never had formal training in winemaking, but I've learned through osmosis, and um, that's, that's been, and through tasting certainly, and that's been really helpful. So Bouchard Cooperages is who I continue to work with, uh, Vincent Bouchard, and we represent um, uh, Coopers from France, from Hungary, um, from Austria now, and we also work with suppliers of oak adjuncts and amphoras. Uh, so a pretty wide range, and what is kind of unique is we act in the capacity of a broker and not a direct rep, and that gives us the flexibility to me the flexibility to be as much an advocate for the wineries as I am for the cooperages and suppliers that I work for. And uh, that for me is a big difference because there is no perfect barrel for all, for all varieties. And that's, uh, it's fortunate that I work with family-owned businesses that are looking at the long-term uh, goal, uh, the long-term uh, benefits of their barrels. They're passing them down to the next generation as well. So they're not looking at short-term profits, uh, and they're smaller, they're smaller by nature. And so they're a very good fit uh, for wines that I found I was, I was um, having to pair with the barrels. It's been a way for me certainly to have a livelihood because the winery in Central Otago, while it was a, it's, it's, it was a great joy during the time that we farmed it, um, was not exactly where we earned money. <laughs> uh, it gave us tremendous satisfaction and pleasure, and the wines that we ended up making and that others made from our fruit gave me a, you know, a lot of satisfaction. Um, selling it was a different story. Um, we could receive all sorts of great reviews, but going on the road selling wine was a very different story. Um, although I'm happy to say that we actually did have our wine here, placed in, in Oregon for a period of time. And um, so, you know, I, I did make that happen at least. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm better at working with, as a, on the supplier side. and. Um, assisting winemakers to find barrels or vessels that enhance what they're doing, what they're spending the, the entire year doing in farming their fruit to get a real good expression, not only of varietal, but a sense of place. And that's my, my bias, I guess, given that I've, I've also been there. Um, and that's how I approach when I go to talk with people that don't know me, first time visiting a winery, trying to get a sense of what their fruit is like, what they're looking for, what they already um, have on hand, and where that gap is. This raises so many questions. I'm going to stick with the barrels now because we're talking we're talking about barrels now. So, I think that I think that. The role of barrels in winemaking is something that's hard to understand or hard hard for outsiders to truly grasp. So tell me about 
Well, first of all, let's back up a second. How did you get involved with, 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 um, with Bouchard in the first place? So John was one of Vincent Bouchard's first customers um, at Navarro Vineyards. Um, Robert Britton actually was another one of Vincent's first customers. <laughs> and um, so we developed a friendship um, based on that. And he's, Vincent would stay with us whenever he'd come to Anderson Valley, taking the long, windy road to get there. And um, you know, we we grew to we grew to be friends. And then when I left Navarro Vineyards, I uh, worked in their tasting room for 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 a couple of years, and then went to um, Oakville Grocery. Vincent would come in and. He doesn't. He says he doesn't remember this, but he would always come and buy chocolate truffles, <laughs> <laughs> and so we would chat. He'd come in and we'd chat, and um, it, it got to the point where Vincent um, realized that he had a growing business and he needed um, some assistance or on an organizational basis, but more importantly, to go even further afield. Mm -hmm. And um, he talked to me for a good two, three years, because I made the transition at that point to working with Duckhorn Vineyards, trying to find another possible fit. Um, and I work with Margaret Duckhorn, doing more in the way of um, marketing, sales, logistics, assisting her with that. And then at, at a certain point of time, Vincent kept kind of pushing me to leave my comfortable job with a you know, golden parachute retirement and all that, very safe stuff. And and finally I, um, you know, I said yes. Um, I wanted the ability to travel further afield and working with Vincent and on my own terms. Um, the one condition, and it was a hard one, the one condition that I, that I told Vincent was that I get got to keep Oregon as my territory. He took a deep breath with that because he met his wife Kay at IPNC. <laughs> so he um, felt very strongly about his connection with Oregon as well. But I was pretty firm about that and he agreed. So um, <laughs> uh, see, it all comes around full circle. Full circle. That's amazing. Yeah. So what, at that point, what was your kind of, what was the learning curve to understand what barrels, what barrels you had, what barrels did, and, and how to start matching them up? Um, it was somewhat steep um, in the sense that I'd been tasting wine to see how the blends as a whole were, um, were best put together, but not really focusing on barrels. I did that, it was part of my job at when I was at at Navarro, we were invited to do that kind of um, thing. Certainly at, at, at Duckhorn, I focused, but not very specifically, on barrels and what they did. Um, and then, um, I guess I, uh, you know, spent a, you know certainly a considerable period of time with Vincent, and hearing him talk over and over and over about certain attributes started to get a really good idea from his lead. Mm -hmm. And from there, um, I've, I've had a decent palate. It's not something that is innate to me, but that I have through experience and repetition been able to improve. And um, the Cooper thumbprint 
is not that difficult to, to tell the barrels apart, but describing them perhaps is. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I work with uh, Dami and Bion. There we go. Uh, <laughs> probably for the longest time. And even though they're owned by the same family, the Dami family, um, they're quite different. The, the, the thumbprints of each of these barrels and how they interact with wines um, leads to very different expressions. Um, with Dami probably being, uh, at least the traditional toastings, a little bit more of a sweet oak a hedonistic contribution that tends to lift fruit and floral aspects um, and is easier to get to know. And Beyond, who I loved and used for the wines we made in Central Otago that already had a lot of fruitiness, needed another type of expression to come through. And Beyond seemed to uh, contribute not just an oak spice note, but a way in which it, it um, added dimension on the palate. Um, and when it was showing at its best, didn't show through as a barrel character. You had to actually look sideways at a neutral barrel or another Cooper's barrel, and you could see that it just enhanced everything that was going on within um, not only, again, the varietal, but the actual vineyard parcel. And I love that aspect of Beyond. It's a much more difficult thing to see easily, so Beyond's remained the underdog between the two uh, Cooperages. Um, and then, of course, we've taken on uh, other suppliers as well. But um, I think when pe you know, people um, are in a position, for example, across IPNC seminars to taste uh, different barrels that don't have the experience, they find it easy, relatively easy to see that there is a difference, mm -hmm. but it's the why there's a difference and why they prefer it that they start to get to under, learn with the help of um, winemakers explaining it to them. Mm -hmm. And so now I work in the capacity of showing winemakers <laughs> <laughs> what it is that's... The, the only thing I can do when I, when I show up, especially when they've just started to use the barrels, um, is I can tell them what's typical for not only the Cooper, but um, for the forest origin, for the uh, toast level, for the uh, air dry, and those kinds of questions. Um, so that's my value of tasting with them. Now, whether they like it or not, that's up to them and how it fits with their blend. But I can um, at least tell them what is showing typically and recommend you know, if you want a little bit more length on the palate than I, I, that's contributed by the barrel itself, then, uh, you know, I recommend doing a toasting over embers, a long toast. And that will maybe diminish the intensity of the aromatic and flavor contribution, but it's going to give you more presence on, on the length and ha help carry the wine through in that regard. So... Uh, it's, um, it's endlessly fascinating to me because what works in one area in Dundee doesn't necessarily work with Yola Hills fruit, um, which then, so there is no one, you know, set of variables that is universally applicable. But I help winemakers find a workhorse barrel within our portfolio where they can kind of fit it with different parcels and then more specifics. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we talked a little bit before the before we started rolling, and you mentioned earlier that you know a lot of what you're working with is kind of smaller, family-owned, long-term, long-term thinking wineries. So tell me about. Obviously, for some of those, a barrel is a big investment. It's a it's a big deal to pick a barrel, and you're going to have to live with it for a while. So tell me about what are people's sort of biggest needs and concerns, and sort of what what do you feel your role is in terms of sort of guiding towards that proper choice. Well, I take it very personally <laughs> because especially when it's a smaller winery, um, they need that barrel choice to be spot on. Um, they can't lose it, lose it in the blend. Mm -hmm. And so um, I like to taste then from neutral barrel and perhaps from barrels that they already know mm -hmm. and get a sense for what they want um, what they're looking for. Are they looking for a point of contrast or are they looking for something that's along the same lines but maybe get in just a bit different? Um, whether they're looking to, well, what percentage it, it plays in their total blend? Do they want a little more impact because they're then going to be dialing it back with more neutral wood? Um, so I have to get a good sense of what they're they're looking for and then um, I can start to hone in on, on on suggestions and I've I've gotten pretty good at it over the years but like I said I'm always learning something new and so I keep good written notes mm -hmm. so that we don't have to repeat things you know when I go to visit them I um, I always have a notepad with, with them, and so I'll often pick up the story from where we left off the previous time I visited and find out how did that this particular trial fare and just kind of gradually hone in and fine-tune what works for their fruit. And that becomes a changing story too, especially if you're working with young fruit mm -hmm. that then matures and you have a different set of needs at that point from the puppy dog, you know, pretty fruit of young vineyards to um, more mature vineyards that perhaps have already, a, they just need to have a foil within which to um, further enhance um, what's already there as opposed to fill in the gaps when all you've got is pretty fruit prettiness uh, going on. And uh, it's... Um, that's why I find my what I'm doing endlessly fascinating. And I, again, I love that yearly excuse to visit people that um, I've really enjoyed and become friends with over the years. Uh, and more importantly, help with the evolution of their wines and helping them make better wines. So from your perspective then, and obviously you have a, you have a pretty strong perspective here, how much role does barrel choice make in end result in the in in the end product that that goes to into into the bottle. Um, there's no doubt that it's a component, mm -hmm. and it can sway a direction. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when the winemaker is going through, um, you know, here it is. It's, it's just about harvest, and you're going through and you're sampling. The winemaker starts to get a little bit of a feel already. What what um, characteristics are in the fruit that are different from the previous vintage and what he wants to um, accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have the luxury 
like they do in Burgundy, of ordering the barrels after the fruits come in. So it's always the best crystal ball guests. Mm -hmm. And so what I have to help winemakers obtain is, you know, likely um, fits, regardless of whether it's really cool, ends up being a really cool vintage or a very warm one. I think this is I think this is one of those parts of the wine industry. Like I said, I think it's a mystery to a lot of people. So I'm just I'm curious from your perspective. Sort of, it kind of feels like a it sort of feels like magic. You know, it's one of those magic things about winemaking where you can take grapes and put them into a lot of different vessels and get a lot of different things out of them. So I think I'm curious. Well, for example, now I'm I'm actually the last five six years I've been working with uh, suppliers of uh, amphoras. Mm -hmm. And, you know, initially I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I knew that it was for more than just natural winemakers, but I really didn't know. And so now I have much better sense um, of what they can contribute. Um, in Burgundy, for example, they started looking at amphoras because they had these warmer and warmer vintages. And they didn't have a way of reassessing their vineyards and what they needed what barrels they needed, what toast levels they needed. They needed a pure prism within which to view them. And so a few, you know, winemakers like Rouleau, they ended up buying some, uh, as an example, Vanateer jars, which would allow them to look at um, the fruit itself. And they'd, they saw that they, beyond it just being that one-off type of purchase, they liked the way in which the shape of the barrel, uh, sorry, <laughs> the shape of the vessel uh, could also contribute this wonderful texture to the wine, especially the more rounded shape, the more egg-like uh, shape, and that ability to retain freshness, vitality and nervousness, and yet textural development, um, the interaction with the leaves, um, gave them yet another um, way to view um, their vineyard parcels that they loved. So uh, that's that was a real eye-opener for me when I started seeing them across Oregon fruit, uh, including Pinot. Um, they have, they can overshadow the wine. Um, and I sigh because so, so does Vincent and Jerome and the other Coopers that I work with. They don't like it when their barrels are used as maquillage. That's what, what, what Jerome would whisper in my ear, makeup. Mm -hmm. They really want their barrels and vessels to be used um, in a supportive way to enhance everything that um, the season is all about, which is the fruit that's been growing all season long and to, to um, um, reflect that, that um, um, the vintage. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when I think a barrel is used properly and that's my whole bias is towards that. And my bias also is to looking at the barrel by itself, that one particular barrel with those particular specs, doesn't make the wine as a whole, make, make it a, uh, does it really complete, make, make for a complete wine? Mm -hmm. um, and I always admit this when, I go, when I'm going to visit winemakers that I've not met before. I'm not looking at it as, as a blend component, um, but does this barrel as a whole? So I excuse myself in that regard. I'm, um, 
um, very aware though that particularly when you have larger blends, you sometimes and, and especially if you don't have a huge oak budget, you want a little more exaggeration from the barrel, whether it be on the front uh, or or middle in terms of giving you more textural weight and more flavorsome barrel, or whether you um, really want a lot of clarity and precision, minerality coming through, um, in which case you want kind of a more reined-in version. And even within one Cooper, you can have a lot of diversity in how that is accomplished, and that's where I've become yeah, just more knowledgeable across everybody that I visit. Mm -hmm. And it's a cumulative effect and a cumulative knowledge that I then, um, again, I can't apply, you know, this works here, it's going to work there. Um, it's always very specific to what the winemaker's vision is with the fruit parcels that he works with. So I'm going to change, kind of change here and talk about New Zealand a little bit because I'm really curious <laughs> about that. So you mentioned kind of the frontier of, of Central Otago, the, the potential of there. So uh, tell me about the decision to, to, to put roots down there and sort of initial the initial impressions as you were looking around for a place to grow. Well, this this happened right around the, you know the the end of the 90s. Uh, again, Steamboat being very influential, and the wines that we tasted there, um, and then um, I mean, at one point we were strongly considering Nelson, and um, Tim Finn was just not only a delightful person but an amazing. A grape grower, and, and you know, to this day, uh, the Chardonnays from Nelson are outstanding, and uh, as well as the Pinot Noirs. But that's been an evolution, and um, so they were all—they all were very generous for their knowledge and experience. Also, looking to share and gain information through their uh, travels here, and. Um, we um, had been on the cusp of doing several other, you know, ad adventures and kind of were a little bit too safe about it. So we promised ourselves that the next time an opportunity came up and the opportunity for us was a result of uh, um, both John, you know, wrapping up um, uh, what he was doing with Boucher Vineyards as well as uh, um, I guess the the dollar the New Zealand dollar was quite low mm -hmm. to the U.S. dollar. We could actually afford, you know, a million dollar place, you know, because it was only thirty three cents to the dollar. It's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> here come the the Kiwi millionaire. <laughs> but it was a you know blip in time, and we knew that was a blip in time, and so we. Um, we thought long and hard about where we wanted to do it, and it was almost a toss of the coin between Nelson and Santo Otago. But in the end, um, Nelson was too s more similar to Carneros, um, where John had been making wine, and we decided, let's go somewhere that's completely different, even though we know that it's going to be that much tougher. The infrastructure is not there. And um, so that's what we decided to do. Uh, we, um, um, at, at the time, there were no 
real estate companies that were like, you know, this is up. I mean, it was always a matter of, I think this farmer might have a, a wee bit of land that they may be willing to sell and, you know, let's go knock on their door kind of thing. And that's how we found Pisa Terrace. Um, it was not in, this was considered a crazy move on our part because it was way beyond where other vineyards had been established. Um, it was not next to Felton Road, for example, um, which a lot of people used as the barometer of like, uh, are you in a good spot or not? And we, um, but we felt a real strong connection to this particular piece of property and we developed it from, um, from basically uh, uh, a, a paddock of lucerne uh, alfalfa and we did, dug a lot of soil pits trying to understand the piece of property and lo and behold, there was so much in the way of difference within that one little island, this is 16, hectares total, just shocking the amount of, 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 of different soil profiles. Uh, but generally speaking, it was um, an alluvial uh, type of soil. Um, there was a lot of, um, I guess, uh, calcareic um, elements there. Was, uh, that whole area was an inland base, you know, sea basin. So there were, it's interesting, I mean, there was an actual limestone, but there were the residue of a lot of fossils and that kind of thing in that area that um, we dug, by the way, we dug quite deep and the alfalfa is notorious to go quite deep. So we had a pit that was going down, you know, probably, you know, two and a half meters and we still found alfalfa down there. So we thought, well, the roots aren't going to have any difficulty making their way down. Yeah, the, the difficulty we had initially was um, the, alfalfa, the uh, alfalfa was very strong competition. Mm -hmm. And so getting the baby vines to um, uh, take up, you know, was, was, uh, was quite dramatic. We were the first ones in the entire area to use gasp metal posts. <laughs> and it's like everybody went, whoa. What are they doing? And we ended up having to get teak end posts from Australia because they were, it was really difficult to find anything of quality that would last and support the long rows that we wanted to plant. Um, rabbits <laughs> were um, the most difficult challenge during uh, the time that uh, these baby vines were taking hold. Uh, they just were everywhere. There was no predator for rabbits, um, so they just proliferated and they just loved <laughs> the growing leaves. And we put, uh, I guess, milk cartons around them. They weren't enough, so then we put these big plastic guards around them. But that had its challenges as well because then um, when we tried to single shoot them so that they would have a nice strong, sometimes they inverted and it just um, it, it just was, was uh, a little bit more challenging. Eventually we learned that we could get, or at least it, they became available vines that were already up to the wire level when you purchased them. And that certainly was a big um, improvement for viticulture within Central. A lot of people switched to those so they didn't have to deal with their poor vines being <laughs> gnawed down to nothing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but um, the other aspect uh, that was uh, 
interesting and to some degree um, Oregon has now felt this is the, the touch of frost. Um, where we were was right against the base of a tall mountain, the, 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 the piece of mountain range. And um, we would often have snow on the peaks and uh, around bud breaks still. And we would have catabatic winds that would come down off those snow areas, especially had just snowed recently. And um, there's um, very little you can do to combat that when it sucks, you know, the little precious uh, layer of warm air above. So we experienced frost probably at least that kind of frost with no inversion layer at least four times during the time we were farming. And, and they were called 100 year, it'll never happen again frosts. <laughs> and yeah, after a year, the first time um, when we had a, we, we used, by the way, helicopters to protect our, our, our vineyard um, because of course it didn't frost very often, quote unquote. Um, and the helicopters um, are as common as pickup trucks in that part of New Zealand. Uh, it's just, you know, they're used to ferry people, tourists, uh, ferry uh, equipment around. And so the rotors of the helicopters uh, um, basically kept the air move moving. And in some instances where we'd have a big Huey, they would, um, the actual engine itself would warm up and. So what didn't work that well, but we still continued using were frost pots. And uh, they'll probably protect a bay or two, mm -hmm. but that's about it. Uh, we eventually got a toe and blow, which I don't think is common here. A toe and blow is, a, uh, is basically a fan that you can move uh, to whatever, wherever direction you think that the wind is gonna be coming from. And you can actually guide um, the wind. So in our instance, we would, we had, as I described earlier, kind of a little island that then fell off on all, almost all sides. And so what we wanted to do was encourage the air to move off um, and to move down the slope. And uh, that, that worked fairly well. Um, when we purchased the land from the McMillans, the farmers that we purchased it from, we had made them a promise that we wouldn't put up a big noisy fan. And <laughs> We held true to our promise, um, um, but once we ended up selling our land and we finally did that to um, Mount Edward, who um, was the primary purchaser of our uh, fruit since the beginning, actually, we, they were very much instrumental in what, variety, what uh, clonal selections we also chose. Um, they immediately put a fan up and got rid of the toe blow. <laughs> But um, every region has their own set of challenges. Um, but you know, I, that 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 frost that we got last year, uh, 2022, um, here in Oregon at the very beginning, um, I'd experienced that already quite a few times, and and my gut feeling, given that they weren't out very far and it was an elevation issue as well, was that oh, there'll be She'll be right. <laughs> One of the few times I could say that. <laughs> and so I immediately ordered a lot of stock barrels. Mm -hmm. People were very cautious, very concerned. And um, yeah, I'm glad I did because I've never sold so many barrels <laughs> as last season. It was, it was the largest. Um, but I, I um, so I have my, so that, see in, in that regard, having my experience in New Zealand, 
has um, has helped. You know, it's helped me um, with um, with knowledge that has helped me address issues here. Um, I'm by no means a viticulturalist or an expert, but I I I knew our block very well, and some of the experiences um, are transferable. But the most important experience is empathy with what's going on through the growing season um, here in Oregon. It's an interesting way to phrase that, empathy with, with the growing season, for sure. Uh, because it seems like every year, every year offers up something that need, you need to be empathetic about. Every year has its own issues, and that's one of the things that I uh, enjoyed about um, Steamboat, is that that would be addressed. Uh, so what was the theme and what was the challenge of the season? How did you address it? And of course people would bring not only their their um, problem child wines, but also their I did this right or I got there. And it was great to have both. And I'm really happy that that was part of what Steamboat was about. Um, I've certainly also attended the Southern Pinot Noir workshop. Um, um, which has also performed a very similar role. Um, this is in New Zealand in Hamner Springs. Uh, Lynette Hudson has done a very fine job in uh, running that and in fact even bringing that on the road to, uh, to Austria this past vintage. So Austria now has their version of Steamboat going on. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Um, and then just, this is a little bit of news, I've decided to, uh, this is my last year working with New Zealand grape growers, uh, winemakers. Um, and the reason for that is that the season, things are now overlapping between Oregon and um, New Zealand that didn't used to be the case. Uh, with the earlier orders needed to get barrels here because of the global supply crisis. I don't know that that's going to change that much in the foreseeable future. And I was finding that I was compromising my attention both to Oregon and to New Zealand and something had to give. Um, so guess what? Lynette is going to take over for me. I couldn't wish for anything better for the winemakers that I've been working with. Um, so Lynette will be selling barrels in her spare time uh, or in her downtime <laughs> and um, but still available to make wine she's she's been making wine for her own label and this year was a fortunately a very very good one for canterbury so see how it all kind of continues and, or, and, oregon, and oregon wins out again in the end <laughs> so speaking of oregon and you've talked a little bit about this already but i'm curious about initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry as you were getting to know it obviously you're getting to know it through Steamboat and and so tell me about the the people making wine then and and the wines that you were tasting at that time you could see the potential so clearly and just the you know the the energy and deep commitment by those people that were pioneers, I mean, the Ponzi's, they'd always show up for a steamboat, you know, and I knew Louisa as a kid. <laughs> and, you know, everyone, uh, it, so because this has all been also organically growing as families, um, um, rather than 
just a migration of winemakers from other areas. It was really a homegrown kind of initial spurt of getting to know what was going on, um, or people that um, uh, had been another that wanted to grow really in a cooler climate suitable for Pinot, and that's a very different um, environment um, that uh, than what I was encountering in in a number of areas in in California. Yes, Carneros was really becoming quite exciting, and uh, so was certainly Anderson Valley and areas within the Central Coast. But this was the, the frontier where I, th I thought it wasn't just going to be good. There was potential for greatness. And I really wanted to be involved with that, that discovery process and learn from, um, you know, from the Lett family, um, learn from people that were um, already getting a real sound uh, idea of their, their particular um, vineyard. There's certain areas where it's like you have a new pair of kids, you can run faster, jump higher. Central Otago was one of them. But whenever I, I'm up here, I feel a whole new sense of energy as well. Um, maybe it's because it's away from the crowded cities. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, but that was also a, a motivating factor for focusing um, my attention at least on, on Oregon. Mm -hmm. And how has it changed? How has that potential come, become, become reality? I think a lot of it has been through Vine Age. Mm -hmm. People have come to discover um, not only um, terroir and which areas are Grand Cru sites, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but um, also, the, what, you need a certain level of vine age before you can really see um, what the ultimate potential of a site is. And um, Oregon has you know, grown dramatically in their ability to realize that. Um, there's a lot of planting still going on. Um, there's, you know, as we discussed, when we first met, the you know, expansion now just south of Salem, the extension of the Yola Hills area, but on the flip side of, of Salem, it's really becoming quite important there. Um, I'm glad that people are continuing to look at aromatic varietals. I, I love Riesling. Riesling is near and dear to my heart. Um, and, you know, yes, Brooks has been doing it forever, and I love what they have to do in Highland Vineyards, but it's good to see expressions, aromatic expressions, whether they be uh, Arnais, Ponzi, yeah. whether they be um, Pinot Blanc. Uh, I love what uh, Chemeketa Community College is doing um, um, with their campus uh, here in the Eola Hills. Uh, and encouraging experimentation, not just uh, very traditional winemaking. Um, so that's a that's a huge deal uh, in in terms of getting local talent mm -hmm. and to um, really understand and farm their backyard, and not just needing a UC Davis. Um, winemaking certificate or Fresno. Mm -hmm. 
Um, certainly they continue to evolve the knowledge, particularly in fronts such as um, smoke taint. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been Oregon that's been on the forefront now of getting that level of understanding along with Washington State. Uh, so uh, they've learned a lot certainly from Australia and their experiences. But there are a lot of new environmental factors that have come to impact wine quality and wine issues um, here. So um, the sophistication and the short uh, span within which challenges have been um, understood and then you know, kind of gone beyond, mm -hmm. has been phenomenal. Again, there's a sense of community here that I just love. There isn't this bickering, um, or as much. <laughs> um, people help each other here, and that's just, it's just inherent. I found that also in most regions in New Zealand, particularly South Island. Uh, I'm biased. <laughs> but. Um, I think that's where you get further along, and especially with regard to marketing and sales as well. That's so absolutely critical because you can have great wine, but if you don't collaboratively um, promote that, you don't get as far. And um, it's it's uh, that has been super important to being able to afford to plant um, more vineyards and buy barrels and do everything else that's that's uh, involved in making uh, an even better wine. So on that note on barrels, how have barrel needs and desires changed in Oregon since you've been selling? I think that people are, are looking towards um, less impactful barrels. And um, that's actually marched hand in hand with what's going on in Burgundy as well. And so while the Coopers maintain a very unique identity, at least the Coopers I work with, they have focused on um, uh, just toastings that are more over embers as opposed to uh, the more violent fires as a way of getting that, uh, that greater respect within the toastings um, for the wine and the ability to stretch the palate length um, so that it's uh, more sympathetic, I guess, particularly to cooler climate varietals. And that's certainly been a trend that I've encouraged. And, you know, we've continued to have these now proprietary barrels from our coopers that focus on that. And, uh, and then they travel here. They, they travel here and they taste and they um, see the, you know, the, the, the benefits of this. So what's, what's next for Oregon? What's, com what's coming next in the industry here? Well, I hope it goes beyond wine in a can. <laughs> but I think um, part of I think part of of, of um, having a wine, having a, a very successful wine industry is having 
wine available on all different levels because entry-level wine is really important and entry-level wine should be good wine and um, that leads people to trade up. Um, certainly um, finding ways to bring people that are younger drinkers into the fold is really important and I, I know that's the focus of a lot of the marketing and sales effort. Um, I think I, I love everything that's going on in Southern Oregon and I've, I've visited them very frequently. They, I uh, think that there's been tremendous strides in varietals beyond Pinot and Chardonnay and aromatics and they're there's, a, there's just very exciting wines happening there, um, and they now are a focus of, um, of um, um, I guess, the, the wine tourist traffic uh, as opposed to just on the way to the Willamette Valley. And so I think discovering other regions within Oregon, I mean, look at the rocks, you know, that, that area now, is super exciting for Syrah and for Boulder varietals, and most of it's going to wineries across the river in Walla Walla, but you're seeing more wineries now take hold there, um, and proud of their, the fact that they now have their own AVA that um, is very unique, distinct, and just seeing other areas emerge uh, further afield from the success that the Willamette has experienced. And you've brought some of this up already, but what's next for you? I want to continue working with winemakers here as long as I can. I do take time off. <laughs> I do so around June and July, and I love spending time on the water. So I want to continue um, being fit enough to sail well. <laughs> but then again, we also have a 1928 cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> exploring the Delta, um, but it's, um, um, I, I want to see the next adventure that winemakers here choose to undergo, and we'll see whether, whether, whether patterns here um, start changing to the point where other varietals become more of interest. Cab Franc, for example, made in a Loire style, I'd love to see that. Um, and that, that, those are some of the conversations I have as I've been make, making my way around um, th this year, actually. Um, where, where's next? What are, you, what are you up to next? And it's kind of that, that exploration. Uh, certainly, you've, we've seen the, uh, the dramatic increase in attention to Chardonnay and the planting. I mean, it was great that Craig Williams, uh, what was it, maybe 15 years, 12, 15 years ago, planted um, almost entirely Chardonnay in an area that really hadn't even seen much of it. And you know now there's this big focus on a varietal that does so well here, uh, sparkling wine. That's a huge uh, growing segment within the, the Oregon wine industry, and rightly so. Um, because this is an area that um, can get good expression with, you know, at the at lower bricks, 
uh, and it's 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 a perfect um, uh, place to have that as a focus of, to the point where everyone wants to have their spark, sparkling wine and there's really now um, kind of a dilemma of, of, of where who has space to make it and there, there are new facilities now that are in development just to handle sparkling wine needs for the entire community that wants to have that as part of their uh, selection in the tasting room. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Well, thank you so much um, for the chance to talk about things that I don't normally, um, I guess, consider as a whole. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure. For us as well, and thank you so much. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything that we, you'd like to cover that we didn't cover? Um, not without being a lot more worried. <laughs> but thank you for the offer. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet us here on this beautiful spring day in the Willamette Valley and uh, sharing your thoughts and stories with mm -hmm. us and dealing with all the bugs. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, this is part of uh, the part of whole we're process. Part of what we're doing out yeah, here. Yeah, it's springtime. So uh, thank you so much. Go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.